Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. You're about to hear my recent conversation with Dr. Rishi Joshi. He is the author of a brand new book. It was just published in the last few weeks called Why It's Okay to Speak Your Mind. Now, you might think, well, that sounds like a book that I need to read. But when I tell you a little bit more about Rishi's background, you might be a little bit more skeptical. And that's because Rishi is a philosopher. He is an assistant professor at Bowling Green State University. And prior to that, he was a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Michigan. And prior to that, he got his PhD in philosophy at Princeton University. So he's definitely a philosopher. He's not a part-time philosopher. He's a full-time philosopher. And you might think to yourself, well, what's that going to have to do with me? But I promise you that his book is on a topic that is relevant to you. And the reason I know that is because we hear from you, our audience, all the time about the subjects that Rishi covers in his book. For instance, are you worried about cancel culture? Rishi's book, Why It's Okay to Speak Your Mind, addresses why it's important, regardless of whether you think your opinion is unpopular or won't be welcomed, to speak your mind. And he's going to make a case for that that involves your community and the people around you. But even as importantly, it involves your life and why it will be better for speaking your mind. I hope you enjoy the conversation. First, I'm going to thank you for being with us, Rishi. We're excited you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we are going to talk about your new book, which is part of a series called Why It's Okay. Uh, And this is Why It's Okay to Speak Your Mind. And I think the title itself for some people might be kind of funny, like, well, why why wouldn't it be okay to speak your mind? But I'm going to tell you, I suspect there are plenty of people in our audience who are going to be listening to this right now and saying, good, I'm glad somebody's going to talk about this because, you know, you can't go through a day or a week without seeing something in the news, whether it's about cancel culture, that kind of thing, or with people, I'm sure people in our audience have those, those examples in mind. But I also think even personally, we hear this from our audience a lot, right? Like there's a subject that is significant in my community um, or at my work or wherever it is that my friends and I may talk about, but I'm afraid to say what I really think. One, because I lack confidence, but two, and maybe more importantly, I'm worried about the cost of that. So where I want to start is I think it's really important to hear for our audience to hear that when you say why it's okay to speak your mind, you're not saying like in this Pollyanna way, well, everybody should just be totally cool with speaking their mind. You recognize there are significant costs associated with speaking your mind. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there are significant costs and, um, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to do uh, in the book. So given that there are these significant costs, what, what should we do as individuals? And, um, you know, as you said, they're increasingly relevant because, um, you know, recent polls kind of show that a majority of Americans actually um, don't uh, feel kind of, um, um, uh, you know, afraid to share certain opinions within their uh, social circles. Um, and this is, by the way, cross-partisan, so so uh, it, it's not a kind of uh, a particular uh, 
a party or, or uh, opinion. And, um, and, and one of the kind of bothering trends is that it's, um, it, it's higher for the more highly educated people. So the more mm-hmm. highly educated people uh, are more afraid to, to speak their minds. Um, and that's especially important because, you know, uh, you know, highly educated people uh, often um, are, are in positions of power and influence. And so, yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, what, what I'm interested in the book is what are the upshots of this? Um, and, you know, one might think that, well, the only upshot is really like, okay, well, some people uh, feel censored or, or, you know, what's the big deal, right? Um, but, but what I argue is that when you create a kind of environment where people suppress certain kinds of information, that leads to social blind spots that can be potentially you know, potentially harmful lead us astray. So, yeah. um, so that, I mean, so that's, that's kind of what the, the, the book project is about. And, um, yeah. and then really arguing that, you know, one way to kind of, uh, you know, do our duty to protect what I call the epistemic commons, which is just a, a kind of term of art there, but, but this idea that our knowledge is a kind of shared resource. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of, you know, l- less appreciated maybe. So we, we look at various shared resources. So we think of, the, the clean air is a shared resource, right? It's kind of, every, you know, everybody benefits from uh, clean air. So, so economists yeah. will call this a public good, but yeah. everybody benefits from a clean air, uh, uh, from, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, clean ocean and so on. But, but I argue that, you know, everybody benefits from our society not having certain blind spots. And the way to preserve that epistemic commons is to really... Um, you know, share our information, our perspectives, our ideas, even when there are costs uh, to yeah. doing so. Um, yeah, I definitely, I want to get into in detail some of this when you mm-hmm. talk about the epistemic commons and also these kind of um, blind spots and, the, and, and you talk about spirals of silence. And I think that's really important because, um, I mean, let's first, let's, let's be clear, what you're not talking about here is the issue of free speech, right? I mean, free speech is something that we have protections for. We have constitutional and legal protections for. We're not talking about whether or not legally you can say something. We're talking about um, something that in many ways is, um, it's a much trickier subject, right? Because it's not a question of whether you're legally allowed to say something. It's whether you ever even feel safe talking about something because you're worried about this cost of, you know, losing your reputation, losing your job. You know, if, if somebody says to me, well, you can't legally say that, I can go to a court and we can we can litigate that out, right? But, um, and I'm thinking of a couple of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was at an event on academic freedom. And the whole event was designed to talk about, you know, whether there is academic freedom in the academy, that sort of thing. And all the faculty who were there said, look, I'm not worried about somebody saying, no, you can't do this kind of research. I'm worried about I won't even bring up a subject with my colleagues because I'm afraid by even talking about it, mm-hmm. I'm going to be embarrassed or I'm going to lose my um, I'm going to lose my credibility, that kind of thing. You were talking about higher education twice this week. I've seen something about the Heterodox Academy um, campus expression survey where as you say whether you're on the left or the right college students say i'm not comfortable talking about political issues i'm not comfortable talking about religion not because i'm not allowed to do so in a classroom but because i might be isolated i might lose my reputation that's the kind of worry you we're we're concerned with here in terms of um speaking your mind 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not a it's not a legal penalty. So the the First Amendment kind of um, you know guarantees our speech at least in the U.S. I mean, it differs from country to country, but even even outside the U.S., I mean, it's rare that you can like get into legal trouble for expressing an opinion. Um, I mean, of course, you can get into legal trouble for like inciting violence or something, which is obviously uh, bad. But um, but you can't get into legal trouble for expressing a, an opinion. And so all the costs, as you say, are, are really social. So yeah. you know, what people are afraid, afraid of is, um, yeah, do, do I lose my reputation? Um, do I lose my standing within my social circle? Um, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, and, and careers, you know, people, especially people who are, I mean, within academia, it's, it's probably a much bigger issue for people uh, that are that are graduate students or not tenured at like me. So, yeah. um, so, you know, we want, you know, we want to think about uh, the, the ramifications for our careers. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, the key here is, is social pressure. Yes. Um, yes. And not, this is... not legal penalties. Yeah. Um, and social pressure may be worse than legal penalties in some ways, right? Like your Absolutely, reputation's yeah. gone, that's it. Yeah, so John Stuart Mill, who was a, a you know, 19th century uh, philosopher who's, who's really great on this, and um, you know, his chapter two in uh, of his book on liberty is, is um, kind of a very illuminating kind of defense of free, uh, free expression and, and why we need free expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he talks about, you know, um, you know, I'm not talking about legal penalties, um, you know, if 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 you express an opinion and can't get a job, period, uh, that that's as I mean, maybe that's not as bad as going straight to prison, but that's that gets close, right? So um, yeah, and there's not an easy remedy for that, even if the legal system is in itself an easy remedy. It is a clear remedy, right? In this case, there's no easy, clear remedy for how you reclaim your reputation. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so given that, okay, so we're, we're totally clear on the fact that we understand there's a significant cost and a significant risk with speaking your mind. Um, let's now go to this point about the epistemic commons, which I think is fantastic. Okay, so, so there's personal risk to me to speaking my mind, particularly on an unpopular subject or a subject on which I have unpopular opinions because I could lose my job, my reputation, those kind of things. But you're saying we should still do it. And the reason we should still do it is because if we're not speaking our minds, we're sort of detracting um, and we're diminishing what you call the epistemic comments. So first, let's for our audience who we talked about this before, we're both philosophers. So, you know, epistemology is something that we're really familiar with. For our audience, what are we talking about when we're talking about epistemology? Yeah, so epistemology is broadly the the study of knowledge, um, and it asks questions like how how are we justified in believing things? Um, you know, uh, yeah. you know, you know. So we have certain beliefs, but what what is the justification for them? And I mean, so um, so I mean, philosophers have talked about about knowledge and what it takes uh, to have knowledge. Um, one of the things that's kind of underemphasized in in recent philosophy, but but uh, um, but I think I mean, for example, Mill and and uh, and this philosopher W. K. Clifford were uh, were kind of good on this. Is that our knowledge is really kind of socially interconnected, right? So, and that's you know um, that kind of falls out of division of labor. So if you think of yeah. um, if you think of life in general, we we all very much specialize, right? So if you're an engineer, for example, you make one part of one chip typically. You don't just like build a car or something. 
you you know you you specialize in, in particular things. Um, but that's true of our knowledge as well, right? So we can only be experts in kind of one narrow domain. And so the other stuff, we kind of rely on others, right? So it's not like we can kind of independently verify uh, everything we we believe in. Um, so we rely on others. So in that sense, you know, our knowledge or our stock of ideas, perspectives is a kind of common resource. Um, and, and I argue, you know, that, that you know, we should, uh, yeah, we should, we should try to protect it as much as we can and so one of my one of my lines uh, in the book is just as pollution threatens the atmospheric commons social pressure threatens the epistemic commons because when people suppress information for fear of um, repercussions that creates social blind spots and I mean one one kind of great example of this is um, you know HBO has this great series called Chernobyl Mm -hmm. where um, you know uh, if so the reason Chernobyl happened and so many people uh, died and continue to um, uh, feel radiation poisoning to this day is that information was like suppressed at critical junctures because people didn't want to uh, basically express to their, you know, superiors that mm. uh, there that there was a problem. Um, and so, of course, this is an authoritarian regime. This is in the Soviet Union, um, Chernobyl nuclear plant, but. Uh, but I argue that you know, so democracy is better in 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 terms of um, dealing with such bottlenecks. Um, it's better, again, but again it's because not. again because you know we don't have legal. You know, you can't go to jail for for saying something. Um, right. But it's not perfect, right? It's not so, perfect. Well, and um, especially if in a democracy, as you pointed out before, people who influence public opinion, whether they're politicians, journalists, public figures feel like they can't participate fully by bringing everything, you know, their, their opinions um, and their points of view to the fore, then uh, it's, it's not a structural problem per se, right? I mean, it's a problem of this pressure and the culture sort of pressuring people not to say what they think. And that sort of snowballs in a way. So I think this is really important to kind of stand on for a second, this epistemic commons that you're talking about, it's like saying, look, all of us have a role in mm-hmm. our public knowledge and our knowledge is more public than we think it is, right? Exactly, Peter? exactly. That- That's a great way of putting it, yeah. And so if we don't participate fully in that, the, that kind of rich you know, epistemic commons you're talking about where all this information is out there, and all this knowledge is available is going to be diminished because we're not contributing fully. I, I take that point. I can imagine someone listening to this saying, well, yeah, but if you bring a lot of bad ideas to the epistemic commons, aren't you also polluting the epistemic commons? And isn't that a good reason for us to not have the bad ideas, whatever we consider bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah. So in the, in the book, I kind of, um, put it in terms of, in terms of sharing your evidence, right? So, you know, you might have evidence for, um, I mean, so it's, it's particularly relevant with these various policy discussions that are, you know, um, sadly polarized uh, in, in, in recent times. Um, so, yeah, I mean, kind of sharing your evidence. Uh, I mean, I distinguish between kind of um, sharing evidence in a kind of good faith way. Um, look, here's, here's a perspective or here's some evidence I have that maybe uh, people in my social circle are not appreciating or, or that, you know, is kind of underemphasized in the, in the news or, or whatnot. 
uh, I distinguish that between like, you know, uh, between that and like contrarianism and trolling. Yeah. So, you know, a, a troll might just put like bad ideas out there just for the sake of riling people up. In the book, you give this example of um, a dam and I think like three or four engineers, is it? Three, uh, three yeah. engineers. Yeah. And, and so what's happening is there's a bridge that's, or I'm sorry, a dam that's going to be built. And there's good reason to think that the dam is structurally sound, but each of these engineers has a piece of information that would raise doubts about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I construct this kind of toy model to, to uh, kind of illustrate how this would work. So, um, so suppose there's, there's a dam and there's three engineers working on it, but there's social pressure against raising doubts about the structural stability of the dam. So we can fill in the story, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe this is a big project for the community and the local politicians, you know, want to make sure it succeeds and so on. So that suppose there are three engineers um, and they're, you know, so there are two good reasons to think the dam is, uh, dam is kind of structurally sound. Uh, but there are three good reasons to think the dam is going to break. Um, but the, uh, but, and, and let's say they're, they're of equal weight and so on. Uh, from each engineer's perspective, they might think, well, there, there's two good reasons to think the dam is gonna gonna be sound. One good reason to think it's gonna it's gonna break. So overall, the evidence suggests the dam is not gonna break. So why should I like bring up this doubt I have about the about the dam? Um, you know, it, it's only gonna bring me social cost. You know, people mm-hmm. are gonna look at me as a naysayer. My boss um, is gonna and, be mad. But my I boss is doubts. gonna be yeah. mad exactly. And um, but the but the and you know for all I know the dam is pretty pretty stable anyway. But if each of the engineers reasons this way, the group settles on a view that the dam is structurally sound. But in fact, the dam is going to break given the 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 given the knowledge people have. So this is a this is a way in which I mean to to use a bit more philosophical jar, jargon, individuals thinking rationally can lead to a group that thinks irrationally yeah. because they suppress. Uh, critical uh, information and so I mean this is this is kind of one of the um, ways in which also you can look at the Bay of Pigs fiasco in in um, Cuba where the you know readers can can google it but uh, but but one of the kind of um, post-mortem looks at the Bay of Pigs and you know uh, Irving Janis who's a psychologist kind of uh, uh, did this and and kind of built up this idea of groupthink from the Bay of Pigs is one of the reasons this occurred is that people who had doubt about the Bay of doubts about the Bay of Pigs didn't voice them, and so the the group deliberation was hampered by um, by by its group members not feeling free to yeah. to uh, to talk about it. So one of the things you know I I want to do with this book is to to kind of um, uh, kind of encourage thinking about like you know what might be the our Bay of Pigs today. Um, yeah. Of of course, I mean. Um, the context is a bit different because you know it's like a the bay of pigs you have a group of people deciding whether to support the invasion of cuba but similar problems can be uh, arising kind of more democratically um, for for our community as a whole so well and i can imagine that people in our audience can relate to this right i mean none of us are probably individually involved in i mean we might be but we're probably not involved in decisions about nuclear reactors or about invading other countries or um but I bet most people can relate to the idea of seeing something, whether it's in their personal lives uh, or their professional lives, where they think, ooh, I ought to say something about this. But you know what? 
I'm going to get in trouble with my boss or my boss isn't going to like it or my friend is not going to like me bringing up this point of view. And and so we can see from our own perspective why we might think, well, there's very little cost to this. All I'm doing is letting someone persist in this belief that I think is mistaken. But, um, you know, even if it's not a question of a nuclear reactor melting down, there are costs to our culture, to our jobs, to our workplaces, um, to our communities for not participating fully, or as you describe it, sort of being a free rider um, on the epistemic commons, not bringing what you believe to the forefront. One one way to think about it for me is, you know, if we look at kind of, uh, you know, times in the past or cultures in the past, uh, we we can kind of... um, uh, acknowledge that they had various blind spots with respect to their policies, um, and and so it, there there's a kind of inductive argument here, which is that if every age in the past had had blind spots, uh, what are the chances that our age doesn't have any blind spots? Right. Right. So, right. Um, and we might and- have more in a way, right? Because you kind of think that the what we see now, what we we often talk about in political polarization is a function in part of this unwillingness to speak our mind or, I mean, it's like a, it's like a kind of a vicious circle, right? Or vicious. Yeah. Like a vicious circle where we don't speak our minds, things get more polarized. We're even less likely to speak our minds. Yeah. It's, um, you know, hyper-polarized kind of environment. And, you know, one of the, one of the questions we might ask is how did, how did it get there? Um, And one possible model is, is people not kind of, you know, you, you don't want to share information that uh, threatens the views of your in-group um, because that, that brings cost to you. And so even if you, suppose you uh, disagree with your in-group on one issue, right? Um, so you mostly agree with your in-group, uh, say on like nine of the 10 issues that partisans disagree about, um, but, you, but you disagree about one and you kind of suppress your doubts on, on that um, because, you know, all it's, you, you know, you might think uh, this way, well, all it's going to do is to, uh, bring costs to me and and you know the other team is worse anyway so why why would i bring this up but there might be other people who have doubts on other issues right so right. you you create a kind of situation where uh there is you know there is information that would kind of polarize us a little bit less but part of the part of the mechanism might be people just kind of not saying things that that kind of um uh that that might be looked looked on unfavorably within within the in group. So, and we have so much more information now too at our fingertips all the time that um, it may seem like the costs are even higher because of that communication. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, one interesting thing about the the polarization that we observe is it's it's uh, it, it it occurs on seemingly kind of disparate topics, right? So if you look at the uh, kind of um, distribution of opinion. Um, you know, certain views on immigration, minimum wage, abortion, climate change, they all tend to kind of travel together. But you, you know, when you, when you kind of look at it as a kind of outsider, you kind of say, well, what is in common with all these things? Why should they travel together? Why can't I have like one view on immigration and some other view on, you know, say climate change, another view on, uh, so, so there's a lot, lot less of like mix and match uh, of opinions, right? You have so if you if you know somebody's views on uh, minimum wage and immigration, you can probably predict their views on guns or um, right. on, on other things. And so uh, clearly, I mean, to me, at least, it seems like something something weird is going on. And um, 
part of what I kind of conjecture is, is this model of people not really, if they have doubts about a view that their in-group holds, they might not, they might not raise them. And so that creates these kind of, you know, to quote unquote echo chambers maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <coughs> um, okay, so I think this is really important, the points you've made about how our unwillingness to speak our minds can diminish kind of public knowledge or knowledge, which again is more public than we think it is probably. Um, but let's say the idea that, well, you know, over the long term and particularly for culture, you know, it's important that I speak my mind, but I'm still really worried about those individual costs to me. You also make an argument that it's not just about that public sphere and it's not just about culture, which are big things, but those costs, the downside costs we see, we also have to keep in mind that there are really significant costs to us personally for not speaking our minds right yeah yeah absolutely so um you know one of the things that um the 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 recent psychological and cognitive science uh, literature on reasoning and reason uh suggests is that our reason is essentially social so the only way we kind of develop uh as as critical thinkers or, or rational thinkers is by testing out ideas by getting feedback so feedback is an absolutely uh, essential component of learning. And um, anybody who's learned to, to ride, a, ride a bike, for example, uh, can, can appreciate this. You can't learn to ride a bike by, by reading a book, right? So you have to actually try it out and, and see, you know, get, get various feedbacks to your motor system. You know, that's how a child learns how to walk. Um, the only way we kind of develop as thinkers, as, as rational creatures is by uh, trying out different ideas, um, and reason is essentially social. So, um, so one of the one of the, the the main functions of reason is to to um, justify our beliefs and our actions to others. And so we can't. So one of the ideas that I um, I defend uh, is that we can't really develop our reason as we can't develop as rational creatures without really speaking our minds. So, yeah. so trying out ideas, getting feedback. Um, and if we think that, you know, developing as rational critical thinkers is one of the um, ingredients of, of, of a good life, um, then, uh, then, we, then we should speak our minds even for our own sake. So um, imagine an extreme case where you couldn't, you know, say what you think about anything, right? I mean, that's, that's obviously not our, not our situation. It, it's kind of a mental prison, right? So you're kind of locked in your own, in your own thoughts and you have uh, no capacity to express them, have no kind of feedback from others. Um, so if you actually look at, you know, people who uh, experience solitary confinement, um, there's a kind of, um, you know, loss of the loss of the self over, over a period of time, partly because there's nobody to express your thoughts to. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's, that's of course an extreme case, but, uh, but. Well, but I, I think there's other, other examples, even less extreme that would definitely resonate with people. Right. So if you're only around people with whom you agree, or you only ever agree with the people you are around, um, it might be comfortable at some level, right. In the sense that you never experience concern. Um, you never have to kind of have the anxiety about the risk of offending people or whatever, but it's a pretty, flat um, life. And it's not something where you're going to have kind of the counterpart of that anxiety, the, I think, excitement of learning new things, the excitement of being exposed to ideas that are new to you, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the, uh, 
yeah, there's going to be kind of no no challenge, uh, no kind of um, a a, a, opportunity to 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 look at things different ways, and and you know that um, at least for me would would take some of the excitement out of life. So yeah, no. And when I when I used to teach, um, we were talking about mill before, and mill features heavily in the book. The example of where mill says something to the effect of. Um, I'd rather be, you know, Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. And if the pig says otherwise, it's because the pig doesn't know any different, right? Right. And right. I remember that being a thing that that college students, and actually I argue about this with my kids, have a really tricky time kind of accepting because they say, well, that's judging the pig, number one. But two, yeah. like there's nothing wrong with just really having a lot of pleasure. This is saying there is a pleasure in the the risk of, of having to listen to new things and having to learn things and having to, in some cases, have your, it's scary to have your mind changed about something, but, but it can, I mean, I'm, we can all think of examples where our mind has changed about something and it's been for the better for our lives. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more exciting that way. So, um, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, you know, w- one of the quotes I like from Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a, who's a 19th century philosopher as well. And he's, he's, I think in this passage kind of talking more intellectually, he says, um, build your houses on the slopes of Vesuvius. Right. So it's like, uh, you know, uh, kind of intellectual danger is, is kind of um, part of the thrill, thrill of life. And that was kind of his way of, of seeing things, but uh, yeah. Yeah, we talk about that every now and then about how instead of trying to find safe spaces, intellectual safe spaces, we need to look for intellectually risky, dangerous places like, you know, the hills of Vesuvius, I suppose. Um, Okay, so one thing we've talked, we've talked about how not speaking our minds can diminish the epistemic commons. We've talked about how it can damage us or certainly lead to us not growing to the potential we have um, and, and flourishing the way we want to or should want to. Um, but what does this look like in practice, right? I mean, uh, one of the things I like, uh, the way you describe all of this is, you know, we talk to a lot of people who work in groups that are trying to bridge ideological divides that get the reds and the blues together and all that. And often I think, well, if everybody just had, uh, as you describe it, epistemic humility, right? If we could just go into the the discussion and say, well, I'm going to listen, I'm going to be careful, I'm not going to make assumptions. That would be awesome if we can do that. But that's not a really, we can't rely on that, right? We have to recognize that it's probably more practical, more more likely that instead of restraining ourselves, in fact, speaking kind of loudly, what does that world look like? So if I'm, I'm listening to this and I say, yeah, I'm totally on board with what Rishi's saying. I really do need to speak my mind. What does that look like for people? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the flip side, and, you know, I like that you brought it up, is, is a kind of open-mindedness, right? So the, the um, kind of associated virtue, I mean, the speaking your mind is kind of self-expression, but I think, you know, in order to do it well, I think, you know, you also have to be open to to different ideas. Um, otherwise, it 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 starts to look like, well, I just express my opinions, and I don't, you know, I don't I don't want any feedback or or. Uh... So yeah, I mean, if if you're trying to develop critical thinking, you want feedback, right? So here's my idea. Well, what what do you think about this? And 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 kind of incorporating that feedback. So I think I think in order to to do it well, and this is a bit abstract, but. Uh, but you know, we also absolutely need to be more uh, open-minded and maybe epistemically humble. Um, I mean, especially because you know, with respect to all these policy discussions, I mean, the world is a 
staggeringly complex place, right? Um, I mean, there's there's disagreement on all these kinds of issues. Um, you know, uh, the minimum wage, the the you know the proper proper response to climate change, um, and I mean, we we all kind of inevitably kind of specialize in one narrow field, and uh, you know, uh, given the complexity of the world, um, uh, perhaps perhaps we should be more open-minded to, to uh, perspectives or views we disagree with to try to, yeah, try to figure out what the, what the world is like. Okay. So um, the book is out now, correct? Uh, yes, it's out. Yeah. Okay. And is there a way you would want people to get the book? Is it through, I mean, is it, would you prefer them to get it through your website, through Amazon? What's the kind of. Um, Amazon's probably the easiest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and if people Fast want shipping and everything, so yeah, that's true. Right? <laughs> um, and if people want to keep up with more of your writing as you, you know, are, are going out and talking about this book, but just going forward, your research and what you're thinking, where's the best place for them to find that? Um, yeah. So uh, I have a website. It's uh, rishikeshjoshi.net. So you can uh, we'll uh, link to it in the keep show up, notes. keep yeah. up uh, with my work there, but uh, good. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. This is great. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I hope you were surprised to find that a conversation that involved a discussion about epistemology could be so relevant to your day-to-day life. But I think that's true. And what I will take away from this discussion and from Rishi's book, which I hope you buy and I hope you read because I think you'll really enjoy it, is that while there are risks to speaking our mind, especially when we have unpopular opinions, We are all worse off for not doing it. The world around us requires people who aren't freeloaders when it comes to speaking their mind, and our own lives will be made better by being willing to take a risk and speak our minds. I hope you read Rishi's book. I hope he convinces you, and I hope that you will take that knowledge and that you will have some risky and uncomfortable conversations with the people in your life because not only will they be better off but you will too thank you for listening to this episode of the civil squared podcast where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas we'll see you next time for another conversation